to the IAPS podcast. This episode is the first of Tim Smith's Journal Club, in which Tim and Dominic are joined by Ollie Langton, head at Bellhaven Hill School, and Sarah Raja, head at Rowan Preparatory School. The discussion is around use by pupils of mobile phones and technology more generally, as well as the joy of a good old book. You will find links to the research papers which are discussed in this episode in the show notes. Hello, I'm Tim Smith. I'm the head at Hampton Pre-Prep and Prep in Southwest London, and I'm here with two other excellent prep school heads and Dominic Norrish, who's also excellent. He's the CEO of IPS, and we're going to have what will hopefully be a professional, very well-informed discussion on uh, a matter that's been sitting in our minds pretty high recently, It's a topical issue. It's about the use of smartphones in school. We might segue into ed tech in general. I'd like other participants to introduce themselves. Sarah, why don't you go first? Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm Sarah Raja. I'm head at Rowan Preparatory School in Surrey, just girls only, um, up to 11. And as, as Tim says, it's really exciting to be able to have this conversation and make the time to have this sort of discussion with other colleagues which I think is you know crucially a really important issue for us as heads but actually also with my other hat on as a parent I think really pertinent for me at this point as well so thank you for letting me join you. And I'm Ollie Langton, headmaster at Belhaven Hill School up in East Lothian in Scotland. We're a small co-ed boarding and day pre-prep and prep school, 141 pupils and very interested in the topic, always have been in all the schools I've I've worked at it's uh, across the different age groups so having been involved with children f- through their education from five up to 18 and seeing the impact uh, and as a parent myself uh, like Sarah I agree that this is topical and important and difficult matter to, dis- to discuss and decide upon so looking forward to an informed discussion. And by way of a little bit of background Dominic you and I discussed this notion of a regular-ish series of podcasts involving prep heads bringing some of the research literature to life sort of in the style of what we might call a journal club which is a a conceit or a process that happens in academia as i understand it very clever people get together and talk about clever things most of it's published either online or elsewhere and that's the approach we've taken today so we shared amongst ourselves three or four really interesting articles about ed tech and in greater detail the use of smartphones as an absolute gift of course recently Gillian Keegan authors uh, a document published here in the UK around smartphone use in schools broadly suggesting schools should prohibit widespread use of smartphones this follows very neatly along from, out of interest, one of the articles we read, uh, what Sweden has recently decided to do, a jurisdiction that by its own definition was very hyper-digitalized in terms of education. Sarah, what's your view on smartphones in schools? Is recent government guidance welcome from your perspective? Should it have gone further? Should we be a bit more like Sweden? I I mean, in terms of was it welcome? Yes. And I think actually, interestingly, reading, having had a look at the sort of the toolkit for schools and, and the guidance around some of the options you might sort of follow or, or explore in terms of how to make this work for your school. 
there were some parts where I found myself thinking, surely we're all doing this anyway. But of course, I'm coming at it from a prep school point of view. And certainly from our point of view, in terms of our sort of thinking around this, mobile phones, smartphones don't have a place in school for us and they don't need to have a place in school for us. Um, and we have very, very few pupils for whom they are absolutely necessary. You know, they might be those, and I'm talking under five, you know, across the whole school and only in our very oldest pupils where they might do the four minute walk home at the end of the day. And those children might have a reason to have those phones in school, but they don't keep them with them all day. That's not, you know, they're, they're signing them in and they, they don't see them again until the end of the day. So I did find myself thinking, I, I had to sort of shift my thinking, if you like, in terms of, okay, I'm now dealing with older children it's not it's not perhaps quite so clear-cut but I think some of the discussion around the sorts of approaches you might take I've certainly seen being used really effectively in senior schools that I visited that I've got experience of working in um, in a through school for example prior to where I am now and I think where perhaps however many years ago not that many years ago where there was a thinking of well surely if they're in school we can just sort of do this I'll tuck it into your pocket and we don't see it and we don't hear it and then it's okay that doesn't go far enough in my personal opinion because I think that's where schools have found themselves unstuck and are then having to kind of row back which reading the Sweden that you know the article around Sweden I sort of found myself thinking well of course you're in a place where you're having to row back because you've gone too far again my opinion too far in one direction and actually then you've not struck this happy medium which is I think what we're all you know blissfully looking for but certainly as I say that that was certainly my instinct when I read the articles and, and kind of looked at sort of the practical advice of schools was this is stuff that we're doing in, in prep schools but I think we don't have some of the challenges perhaps of our older pupils um you know that that would be my kind of instinct it's very easy from my point of view I guess in that sense to be quite black and white about it. Ollie does that largely chime with your view your experience your opinion what's happening up in Scotland with you? Yeah no it certainly chimes with my opinion I, th I think the key thing for for us, from our perspective in prep schools is, you know, what are we preparing our, our children for uh, at the next stage? And um, I, I think that, like Sarah, we don't have uh, smartphones um, for, our, for the small number of international pupils that we have. They're allowed for, for travel, for communication purposes, obviously, but then they're handed into house parents when they arrive. So they don't have use of them at all during school time. But ignoring the fact that they are a part of everyday life is dangerous and so we have to accept that there needs to be a conversation around uh, sensible use and that we don't end up allowing our children to go into the situation of famine to feast as it were sort of uncensored uh, unlimited access to, to something with which they're not familiar and now of course that's that's not the reality because you know as the stats show you know over 90 percent of 11 year olds in the UK have a have a smartphone and so even if they don't have access to them at school they've certainly got them at home and so I think it's a, from our point of view it's about creating a conversation with families about how school and families can create the support network for children and pupils to be able to uh, navigate this very difficult area successfully for, for the benefit of their mental health and for the you know for the whole family's uh, well-being I think. That speaks to the wider piece around you know safeguarding issues uh, access to material online that you know, I don't want the pupils at my school seeing, at school, certainly, but also, you know, in my own view, I don't want them accessing it or seeing it at home. Is there a reputational piece that we need to think about here, though? Being devil's advocate for a moment, you don't have to spend too long on Edu Twitter to find plenty of people wading in 
against so-called very strict schools with far too many stringent rules and regulations. Kids should be allowed to do what they want. They should be able to bring whatever gadget they like into school. They should be trusted to learn how to deal with it effectively. Lessons and the quality thereof should supersede a child's wish to get their gadget out of their pocket. I personally haven't had any parents coming in to me saying that sort of thing, but looking forward, is this something we should be considering? I think actually that's a really good point. And it comes back to what Ollie has just said about what we're preparing them for. And I think part of this piece as well, and, and you made, mentioned it there, um, Tim, as well, is around families. You know, we, we have to also remember we're educating pupils. And so that is about them having an understanding. It's not it's not good enough for us to say, you just don't use smartphones, you just don't go on social media, you just don't do these things, because we know they will. We have to equip them for that. But I think the other piece to all of this is we also are, you know, realistically, the parents of these pupils, certainly, this, you know, in our schools are going to be, yes, they will feel themselves very equipped in terms of dealing with social media and smartphones and gadgets and devices and all of that stuff. But at no point did they have to deal with it at the age their children are now. And I think, you know, it's moved on such a long way. And our parents, I mean, God, I say it myself, you know, I would class myself as somebody who understands how to use social media. Some of the apps that teenagers are using, I wouldn't know where to start. I don't see the point of them, firstly. So I'm not going to engage with them at the same level my child will. And actually, that the danger then is I don't really understand how it's going to be used. So I don't really understand how I can helpfully and usefully um, sort of create a system where that can be used safely and my child can, can learn how to use it, you know, well and make all the right choices and all of those sorts of things. I mean, I'm painfully aware of that because of the job we do. But I, I think there are lots of parents who actually feel really au fait with all this stuff and then perhaps don't have the same, you know, expectations or the same understanding of what their children might be doing with these things. And that's often where we get unstuck. It's not that parents don't want to understand or don't want to support or, you know, kind of help their children to, to get, a, get a sense of how to use these things properly. But they just don't, they just, they don't really realise that it's the thing they've got to actually think about parenting them through necessarily, because it wasn't their experience. As you say, in terms of the kind of right of a child, I think we have to come back to what are we actually trying to do? Um, we're trying to make sure they can function safely and thrive in, you know, real life ultimately in the long run and so it's about giving them and, and making sure they've got the time and the tools to, to kind of equip themselves early and, and as parents and families we you know we have to do that but I think as schools we inevitably end up with a responsibility for supporting them through that as well despite the fact it's the children in our schools but it's our families that we work with so I think you know I do see that as part of our responsibility actually um, as well and I think these schools that have very strict rules in place you know, that's, as you say, Tim, it's a real kind of divider um, as to how you feel about that. But, you know, there's a lot of research that says that does good things. And actually, the outcomes are great for those children, but families have to be on board with it um, because otherwise it kind of falls flat. So I think it's, a, you know, it's a really complex piece. We're not just we're not just teaching children. We're, you know, we're supporting families at the same time, I think. Ollie, at the risk of sounding a bit prejudicial, you're fairly rurally located in idyllic Scottish countryside. Nonetheless, how connected, how up-to-date, how important is the latest gadget, the latest ed tech, or the latest tech to your parents and indeed the pupils at your school? Well, it's important because I think it's a part of our, our lives, unavoidably so. Every, everyone's business, everyone's, um, everyone's future is connected to a device of, of, of some sort. But of course, we're not, we're not just preparing children for for the world of work we're, we're, we're you know we're preparing 
human beings for life and there's there's more to life than just work so i think and and our schools are great places to bring people together you know they're, they're communities and uh whilst this is an individual decision uh for parents as to how they bring up their children what access they allow their children to have to a device that probably is owned by the parent for, you know for, for a considerable part of the child's life i do think as sarah said that we have a responsibility as the schools to to provide a platform for people to feel that they can discuss things, these things together, because I think you know one of the things that has become recently very apparent is how isolated parents feel in the decision making process. That they feel that they're under a lot of pressure to, to provide a smartphone for for their children because the child might be saying, "But I'm the only one that doesn't have one," or "X and Y has got one, therefore I should have one," and everyone's got one at my age, and you're being unfair on me. The reality is, of course, that eighty percent of parents are probably in that bracket of feeling very uncertain about what everyone else is doing. And and actually, if they, if we as schools can provide the opportunity to bring people together to give individual families the confidence to make a collective decision, then I think that it's much more likely that we'll be able to get things right on behalf of the children. I, going back to the earlier point about sort of pupil voice effectively of them saying, well, you know, children should be allowed whichever device they, they like. I think I think it's really important that we take back some control over that as adults and are confident enough to say, look, we know these things are designed to be addictive and therefore dangerous for, for your health in some form. We are saying we don't think they're the right thing for you to have at this age. We're not saying that digital devices are bad or that all the content that you can consume on a digital device in a controlled environment is a negative thing. There's so much evidence to suggest that there are huge benefits to using ed tech sort of correctly in a, in a controlled environment. But what we are saying is that smartphones are a distraction that is uh, unnecessary. We don't have smartphones at all, but we do have an iPad uh, for every child. And, and the idea of that something we we rolled out three years ago uh is that it's a it's a creative companion to every lesson that might be used for one moment in a lesson it might not be used at all in a lesson it might be used for half of the lesson but it's there to enhance and extend it's not there to replace you know they write in textbooks in, in jotters they continue to learn those fundamental skills but the device the digital device is there to complement what the teacher is doing it's not there to replace and there's there's no need for a smartphone in that environment i like the notion of whatever gadget might be in use happens to be ipads at your school ollie being known as a creative companion that suggests doesn't it that there's a kind of repertoire or a selection of tools available to kids that they can reach out for opting in and out as they see fit to help them with whatever it is that they're learning. I mean, the point you make about the addictive nature of of devices, smartphones in particular, that speaks very neatly to another brief piece we read online by an educational blogger, Peps McCree. I'll recommend him for those who don't know him. He has a brilliant series you can sign up to, Edgy Snacks, I think they're largely known as. Uh, and he talks about, you know, the tax on children's attention that too much device time can lead to. Are we seeing that in schools? Do we feel that pupils in our schools are less able to concentrate in lessons now? Is that a slightly old-fashioned view? Are kids now needing more immediate, constant 
input in lessons? Do lessons have to be very zingy to keep them engaged simply because of the way they're used to their online lives being very zingy? What's our position on that? I don't think it's changed that much, to be honest. I would say it's sort of a 20-minute attention span for, for the, the age of the children that we're teaching is has remained fairly uh, consistent, in, in my opinion. I would say, and I think it's been interesting reading uh, about it, that the idea that if you get used to doing shallow tasks on your smartphone, you will therefore not be able to do a deeper task on your smartphone. I think that rings quite true to me. I don't think it necessarily means that you can't apply yourself to a deeper task with paper resources to hand. But I do think obviously it means that you need to practice both uh, in order to be able to achieve well. So I think that's something that really stood out to me in in the research that we were doing of interest. I, you know, you, you don't need to practice um, scrolling through Instagram to get any better at it. But you, if you were required to do a, a reading comprehension uh, and that's all you've done and you were needed to do it on a device, then you might need some extra time in order to do that. I thought that that was a really interesting point because I don't think, and I might be wrong here, but I don't think there is any consideration at the moment given to the differential in our digital competencies when, when we're online uh, and being asked to do an assessment, I'm talking about maybe a 10-year-old child here, is there any consideration given to the fact that they, as an individual, will probably have a different level of digital competency to the next child that's totally different to their, their IQ, their, their CAT score, whatever it may be? Mm. I don't think we're, we're considering that enough at the moment. And so I don't think it's necessarily about the concentration levels of children I think they remain fairly consistent I think it's about what we practice what outcome we're looking for do we have a well-balanced variety uh, of media uh, with which we're educating so it's about being adept and fluent with the hardware isn't it a bit if what we want to do is incorporate an intelligent use of gadgets devices not smartphones it's about a kind of level playing field for all kids, irrespective of their ability, making sure that when you are putting them in front of a machine, when you are expecting them to use a device of some sort, they've all got the right level of skill. Sarah, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And actually, with Ollie saying that that, that piece around, in terms of how you know what we would normally do to engage, if I it, it made me think about my own usage, which I appreciate again, as you know, for reasons we've already discussed will be different to that of your average 10, 11, 12 year old, whatever. But I thought it's really interesting. It made me reflect that I would never choose to work on my smartphone ever. We had a, a digital breakdown just before half term and we lost all internet connection at school for an afternoon. And I had emails I had to do. And so my, you know, I, I could, what I tried to do was sit and, and do them on my phone. It just, for me, it, it didn't work. And I think it was because, as, as you said, the habit I have is that my smartphone is basically recreational. It, there's bits of it that are functional, but basically it's recreational. I, you know, my emails come through on it, but if I want to respond to an email, uh, short of just a quick one-liner back, perhaps, but certainly parent emails and more formal communication, I would always choose to do that on my computer. And so I found this really, and I sort of had this moment of like, what is wrong with you? You know, just, just do the things you need to do. And I think, it's almost like that switching from, from my brain, it just couldn't cope with the fact I was trying to do something basically in the wrong context. And I just think our children, to a greater or lesser extent, and I think the point around their sort of capacity and their expertise, if you like, with what they're using is absolutely crucial. You know, we, we don't give enough consideration to that, I don't think. But also, is there something about the fact that we are expecting our children to flip between these different sort of approaches 
constantly and actually we're not necessarily accounting for the fact that firstly they may they'll be more suited to one rather than the other um you know what, what did we all do today for these articles we pretty much all printed them out we had them digitally but actually that's because we felt individually we were more suited certainly i found it much easier to read articles and annotate you know on paper but we're expecting the same of our children and I think particularly when we're talking about them having their kind of toolkits, which I think, by the way, are brilliant. I think it's the idea of having a creative companion, I think is fantastic. And it frames it so brilliantly for them. But that in itself takes some skill to develop. You know, how do we flip? How do we go from paper and pen to that and then back again and so on? And like anything in schools, some children will find that easier than others. It's a really interesting kind of point, I guess. And I think this idea, you know, the, the Swedish bit where they're talking about this hyper digitalization and kind of rowing back on it. That in itself is going to have an impact, probably in the short term, medium, maybe even the longer term, because you sort of trained a generation of children to, to learn and behave a certain way. And now they're coming back on it. And they're, you know, there's, that's going to have an impact, perhaps in terms of outcomes for those children. Um, I think we have to account for that. But if we're asking them to have that sort of flexibility of mind and approach, that will take some time and some practice. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting piece. And I think, you know, just going back to sort of devices in schools, we don't actually use one to one devices. We have banks of devices um, for sure for use. And our girls, you know, we'll use devices for all kinds of different things, including, we, you know, we, we teach engineering and technology. And that's obviously a big part of it. Um, you know, computer science, as you would expect. But actually to then sort of complement other lessons as appropriate, we, we do have those kind of banks of devices, but it's not a one-to-one -one basis. And we did a really interesting piece of work around talking to staff and to parents about how they might feel about the theory of one-to-one -one devices. There was a lot more reticence than I was expecting. I think with, you know, the kinds of documents and, and the kind of journal articles and research that we're reading, I think parents are reading that too. And, you know, in COVID certainly where we were all driven to screens and driven to devices, you know, there's an element of sort of, gosh, don't take us back there again, I think, as well for some parents. So it's, you know, it's something definitely that, that I think in terms of, as, as you described it, Ollie, in that kind of, it's not a necessity, it's not a forced part of the lesson, it's as it, it complements the lesson. It's very much sort of part and parcel of the toolkit for the children, I think, is is a really great approach from what, you know, from what we know about how children work. I think our parents are naturally more invested and more engaged, though. I mean, prep school aged parents are going to be looking more frequently over their younger children's shoulders. They're going to be keeping arguably a closer eye on what they're doing in the evenings, whether you call it homework, whether you call it prep, however it's sent home, whether it's being sent home via an online platform or whether it's, you know, old fashioned, here's the instructions in the prep diary, turn to page 14 of the textbook and do the comprehension. I think that all shifts though, when our pupils get to senior school. And I think one of the things we need to be mindful of as prep school heads is how early teens and certainly middle to late teenaged kids are already being expected to work. They are, depending on the sorts of schools they go on to, being expected to split, my words, between a range of devices, a range of sources. They might have two screens open in front of them, depending upon the lesson they find themselves in, depending upon the school they go to. But they're still expected to kind of bring all of that together, produce something meaningful that demonstrates what they have learned. And yeah, points, Ollie, you were making earlier about they still have to, to demonstrate progress meaningfully. Is that really going to be so easy for them to do on a device? Should they still be writing out longhand excellent essays on Shakespeare? Ollie. 
I was talking to a university undergraduate a couple of days ago and, and she was re remembering her A-level experience, her revision experience, and talking about how she and her friends would come up with some pretty complex but effective ways to help each other to revise by maybe asking a friend to take a smartphone away or or to change a password on an app or whatever it might be to limit the time that they have. It just made me think about how much time is taken up for these children and how many skills they're developing in doing that for, for one, but how much time is taken up in thinking about how to not let the smartphone become a distraction. You know, we've only got the capacity to think about a certain number of things within our working memory at any one time. If three of those are how to make sure that your smartphone isn't distracting you then you know you've only got four left to actually work with the thing that you're doing and you know that that's very limiting on your capacity to to work effectively i do think taking smartphones out of out of schools and out of children's hands would be something that they would thank us for in the long term and i think we have to look at it in a long-term way i think you know there will of course be short-term ramifications and much wailing and gnashing of teeth but effectively be going cold turkey you know for people and uh, that that's difficult but i i think it, we mustn't be afraid of being unpopular uh, when we know that something is clearly detrimental to their long-term well-being aren't you being frightfully old-fashioned there ollie are you actually <laughs> yeah. suggesting hang on does this lead nicely into the next article we read are you suggesting that we should all just be sitting down curling up with a really excellent book should we be picking up books and reading them? This leads us to, and I am keen to talk about this just for a few moments at least, very snappily titled article we all read, I'm sure, in great depth, a meta-analysis on the effects of reading media on reading comprehension. Essentially, authors who had researched whether kids' outcomes were better, worse, the same, depending upon whether they'd studied stuff on a gadget or studied and learned stuff from printed out material. My headline takeaway was actually printed out material on bits of paper bound together in a book seems to have a greater lasting impact on pupils' outcomes. Is that widely shared as an analysis of that piece? And perhaps with the exception of reading narrative texts, novels, that particular article seemed to suggest that understanding of novels, which arguably is reading for pleasure anyway, isn't necessarily different. But but there is a relational thing here, isn't there? I mean, books, the physicality of them, much has been said about that already. The feel, the way in which our brains operate differently when we're turning pages rather than swiping left to right or vice versa, whatever it is, means material content knowledge sinks in more deeply that's what the research seems to say. Sarah, what's your view? Yeah, I think that's that's that was definitely my headline takeaway. And actually, there was almost there was a line certainly in part of the conclusion where it said something about effectively, you, it's not realistic to say that we shouldn't have any access to digital devices. But let's not get away from the fact that yes, exactly as you surmised there. I think also there's something about that, as you say, the physicality of it is is really important. And I. I think, again, I come back to what I said earlier a little bit of, you know, you can mindlessly scroll. That's really easy to do. You can scroll down whole, you know, reams and reams, whatever that is, whether it's a social media app or whether it is, you know, the news online, whatever it is, it doesn't actually take any conscious thought. You don't have to be, you don't have to be intentionally doing that. Whereas turning a page, it, 
can't do that really completely automatically. There has to be an element of having, you know, scanned through those pages to know when to move and so on. I, I read relatively quickly, even when I'm reading a book, but there is an element of you scroll down and you very often end up scrolling far more quickly than you're actually reading and possible to take things in. There's something really, I know this makes me sound really old fashioned, there's something really magical about a book, um, about having it in your hand and, and it kind of, this idea that it's sort of, you know, we talk about this sort of transportation children, don't we? It transports you somewhere else and, but there is something about it being a physical, tangible thing. And they all look different. Um, and, you know, we do so much work, in particular in kind of primary English, around looking at the cover, reading the blurb, where's, the, you know, all of the illustrations, all of those things. We do all of that discussion and we kind of really analyse the choices authors, illustrators, all of those really crucial people have made. Um, and, of course, you lose a lot of that. That's the other part of it. You lose a lot of that in a digital copy as well. So you're sort of losing some of the things that would innately draw children in, I think, particularly. And, you know, and I'm saying this as a book lover, rather, I would always choose to read a book rather than a digital version, even now. And I, but, but I think for our children, again, I think if that's a choice they make later on because they prefer reading on digital devices, for example, but I think there's a danger when they don't really know what we've said already, they're not perhaps quite as um, digitally literate as they will become. There's a danger then that they're not making a conscious decision to read a book on a device. They're just doing it because that's what the device does everything else. And, and I think that's the difference is it's almost giving them, <laughs> taking back the control, sort of parenting them, educating them, teaching them. This is what this is how we read. And then later down the line, you can make the decision actually as to that saying you want to read or not. So I think there's an element of that as well. For, I'm always for, anxious about the reluctant reader. I'm always anxious about, you know, trying to get those kids who naturally don't like picking up books, though, to develop a love of reading and a habit of reading because reading is so important. Complicated, multi-step maths problems. You need to be able to read the language and understand it to work out what algebraic equation to apply. And, you know, I worked with a head of learning support in a former school, not my current school, who, who said, for heaven's sake, it just doesn't matter what they're reading on as long as they are reading, especially and including those reluctant readers. That former admonition sits on my shoulder and occasionally, you know, I hear her voice reminding me of that. But actually, the other piece around picking up books, I agree with you, Sarah, there is that wonderful kind of attention that arises from, from the physicality of a book. Sitting down with a parent or an older brother or the adult looking after them at home until mum and dad get home and sharing reading is also terribly important. I think that's probably a bit more meaningful if younger kids, including reluctant readers, are turning pages and talking about language and vocabulary together. I mean, I say that based on my own experience, but but I realise perhaps there's, for time-precious, time-pressured parents, an alternative view. Ollie, what's your, what's your position? No, I was just going to make two points uh one about those with additional support needs and the benefits that, that that can be found in reading with a digital device you know the, the immersive reader in an ipad the ability to add colored overlays to text the ability to add lines the, the access to epic books or, or whatever it may be you know these are hugely powerful uh tools to help break through the the difficulties that a lot of children find with reading and 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 that has been 
really transformational for our children you know the, the benefits of ed tech there are, are massive the other point was just to agree with what both of you said about the magic of reading and also not to feel that we're being old-fashioned in championing the book i think you know the book is one of the most incredibly resolute and flexible inventions uh, the, you know there's so many times when we thought that the book is about to disappear you know whether it's the you know the advent of the kindle or whether it's the ipad or whatever it may be and yet it sort of reinvents itself and 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 remains the most treasured of possessions for uh, for a lot of people and i that again i would echo that the importance of that physical that act of reading um taking yourself away with the prime intention of reading that conscious decision that you've made in order to focus your attention on that particular task that's a hugely valuable thing that brings immediate rewards whereas the you know the accessibility of the smartphone or the digital device it doesn't reward you in the same way because you haven't you haven't made that decision necessarily to read what you end up uh, digesting so i th- i think we we, sh- we mustn't i think um put books into the old-fashioned category I think that's that's really doing them a disservice and and doing what we do a disservice because I think they are as relevant to to us today as they as they always have been I think also the printing press you know came about via ability of someone to learn to innovate and adapt it didn't it didn't just come out of out of nowhere so about you know prior learning is a really important thing you know we can't we're talking about children making decisions uh, about what's best for them to learn with, you know, all of these, you know, the judgments that they make come from the confidence from what they've learned before, and they have to be competent in certain areas in order to make good decisions. Um, Gutenberg, you know, I think he was a goldsmith and a and a wine press expert, you know, that, and then he invented the printing press. He didn't wake up as a printing press inventor. So they've got, we've got to be able to teach them some facts and some knowledge before they then introduce 21st, what we might term 21st century skills. Uh, and we do that by encouraging them to read. couldn't agree more. Knowledge matters. Knowledge begets knowledge. We're nearly getting to a point where we can start pulling together some clunky or perhaps very well-finessed, intelligently considered conclusions. But Dominic, you, you wanted to leap in. I'm, I'm glad you've uh, set me up there for not having kind of uh, intelligent things to say. That's fantastic. Very accurate. I wanted to say something uh, that Ollie kind of almost said uh, about Gutenberg. I mean, he was, as you say, a disruptive innovator. He was the kind of Elon Musk of his time, if that's not too pejorative. And invented a technology that was hugely disruptive, that democratized access to information, and that was to cause, you know, more and bloodier wars for the next 400 years, uh, from which our kind of Western society has only really just emerged in, in the last century or so. so. So that we are at the same scale now of technological change and the same risk to our society. I know there are loads of, of things um, that I could mention about what's happening in Sweden, and the, which appears to be a bit of a backlash to the backlash and a wild, wildly kind of oversteered reversion to, to something that probably isn't appropriate either. Uh, kind of no technology, uh, all clothed in fears about learning, uh, which aren't necessarily grounded in the truth. But I think we can all acknowledge that it's a serious social problem, mobile phones, smartphones, in the hands of adults. Okay, it has changed our society. It is changing our ability to relate to each other in sensible ways. It's changing our ability to give attention to the things that are important in our lives. And 
that is going to affect children even more so, particularly if it has an impact on how they experience childhood. So I think it's completely non-controversial for schools to say that there is no place for a mobile phone in a school. And yet there is a place, as you know, Sarah and Ollie and you have been saying throughout, there is a place for considered use of technology alongside traditional forms. There is you know, great learning to be had from an authoritative textbook, which contains the kind of distilled learning of experts published through extremely rigorous processes compared to, you know, uh, just looking up something on the internet and then moving away to look at something else at the first flitting whim that crosses your head, uh, as I experience all the time. So I think that, in essence, we're talking a bit here about what is often presented as slightly false binaries, particularly for clicks. You know, this is a bad thing. We must not do that. This is a good thing. We must do that. In reality, as we're experiencing, as you've described brilliantly in your schools, a blended approach, if that's not a, a bit of a redundant term these days, where you're using the best tool for the job at the time in a, in a, uh, a mindful, thoughtful way that does empower the pupils to make choices where accessibility is important, where it unlocks the access to education from people who might have struggled in other models and modes, but is not taken to excess. And, the, and that's, the, that's the beauty of, of the sector, that you've got the freedom and the confidence to make those choices, fully engaged with the research evidence, so that your, the parents who are entrusting you with their child can be assured that you are, um, and I'll repeat a phrase I've used before, it's not mine, I stole it from another prep school head, that you are the guardians of childhood, that the children are coming into your care to experience a fantastic education that sets them up brilliantly for you know what is going to be an even harder teenage time than we had definitely uh, under much more pressure and that's only going to get worse i think as technology intrudes into everyone's life in ways that we well i certainly as an older member of this podcast never really had to experience and and the fact that um, you're so kind of mindfully astute and informed about these issues means that children coming to your schools will really experience the, the kind of childhood that our species has benefited from since the Enlightenment. Jamie Martin, who, who, who authored an article that we all read as well, Jamie Martin, uh, an educational blogger, the government have consulted him or he contributed to government consultations about tech and hardware and smartphones, talks a bit about the devices and the hardware themselves versus the pedagogy, versus the ways of teaching. And Dominic, I think you're absolutely right. It behoves us, doesn't it, as prep school heads, to think really carefully about what that blended approach, if that is indeed appropriate, might look like. Jamie Martin suggests that, you know, when EdTech fails, it's because schools have made poor decisions about what sorts of gadgets they've decided to spend all that important money on. And they're not using them properly because teachers aren't equipped well enough to make the most of them. I think that's possibly something for us to explore in another podcast. But at that point, Dominic, what's your view? Well, just, just to finish on that, I, I mean, my whole career up to this point has basically been on the fringes of EdTech. And um, despite you know starting off as being possibly too evangelistic for this i've come full circle and I, I kind of do agree with the premise that that jamie's making in that in that article done badly this is an abject waste of time and money so but no one's talking about doing this badly let's do this well obviously uh, but most of the impact of the te technology we see in schools is not about the technology it's about how well it's used 
particularly by teachers, I think has the best chance of impacting positively in the hands of a really skilled teacher who is saying, how can I be more effective in my teaching with this? What does it let me do that I couldn't do? And there's some really obvious examples in every classroom um, of technology enhancing great teaching. So that's the thing I think our school should be focused on and not the bells and whistles. And that's why we see, as I described, these kind of wild lurches from everything tech, no tech. And obviously the, the middle ground is a sensible, you know, appropriate, well-deployed technology. Let's leave things there. Uh, hopefully that has been enough of a spur for other prep school heads and any other interested educator who has listened thus far to get their brains whirring around what edtech smartphones do or do not mean to them. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you all and I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the IAPS podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please do subscribe to our feed and whatever podcast app you use so that you never miss an episode. It would also be brilliant if you could leave a positive review and tell someone else who might find this podcast useful.